Digital Gonzo, episode 114, recorded January 8th, 2013. The Sound of Gonzo, volume 4, Lord of the Rings edition. out our Lord of the Rings review podcast, we have got a special treat for you guys, a musical exploration of the complete soundtracks. We're going to go ahead and assume that if you like Lord of the Rings, you probably bought the single disc CDs a decade ago, and like us, listen to them over and over and over. If you didn't, they can be had for mere pounds these days, and a frankly essential soundtrack listening. However, They were far from complete, and the extended edition multiple disc box sets were released several years later. These are very rare, very expensive, and hard to get hold of. Only The Return of the King is currently available via iTunes for $29.99, or via Amazon MP3s for $21.99. Though you may be able to get The Fellowship of the Ring on CD... For £33 pre-owned, as we speak, The Two Towers is unavailable. Uh, in other words, the complete recordings are going to be very, very hard to come by until some bright spark suggests releasing the first two digitally. I don't know why they haven't done that yet. It doesn't make any sense. What we have tonight is some of the choice moments of the complete recordings, moments that are mostly unrepresented or differently arranged on the single disc sets, moments that often come from the extended cuts of the movies, and moments that might not have been properly showcased during our reviews. As always, we'll talk at length between tracks about the creation and themes of this music and what, of course, it means to us. So with me once again are Sharon Shaw of Dorkcast. Evening. And Chris Eason of Gameburst. Ahoy hoy. Ahoy hoy. <laughs> right, so we're going to start with the prologue and the Shire, because this, if you, do you did you get the one disc of uh, Fellowship of the Ring, Chris? Uh, what are the, yeah, the, the normal soundtrack, yeah. yeah. First track is called The Prophecy, and it's actually, it seemed like it was an arrangement of the Howard Shaw's that was done before they actually finalised this section of the film because it's completely different to what you actually get in the film. There's, they don't have the Song of the Ring that so the one disc set start with something completely different and tonally out of step with the rest of them. So it was a relief when I finally got hold of the complete recording uh, fellowship to actually get the full thing. And there's a lot of stuff that you, and you find this out a lot while you're listening to the complete scores. There's a lot of stuff you miss because there's sound effects or dialogue over them, but there's lots of little subtleties and things. And I want you folks out there to listen very carefully for the quiet bits and the subtle bits because you won't really have caught most of them while I was reviewing them. And this is a prime opportunity for that. Within the prologue music, you get the Song of the Ring, which is the one I just mentioned. Uh, you also it starts out with the Lothlorien theme because it's uh, Galadriel talking, and then a lot of the sort of the trumpety stuff in the middle is very kind of like early Gondorian, Numenorian stuff. There's a sort of a, a link to to what later becomes the Minas Tirith theme, and then you get the early Gollum theme at which eventually gives way to the Shire. And we're going to play part of the Shire theme as well, which is the bit from the extended edition where Bilbo's talking about the lifestyles of hobbits. I think this is a, uh, an excellent way of beginning this 
this you know sound or this score and this film mm. just a sort of a very light introductory but a sort of an almost creepy you know that it, it sounds it doesn't sound of this world which is you know a good introduction to obviously a world that isn't this world and a little bit later when they have the the sauron sort of introduction that reminds me a bit of the jaws theme it's sort of got that that brooding evil but sort of moving forward you know it's coming for you which which they show in the in the film yeah. and this score is so tightly packed with with depth that 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 only occurred to me today after having listened to it like hundreds of times so it's every time i listen to it there's something more that i I hadn't noticed before which is a a sort of a, a sign of quality
one thing um, that I did want to say about the prologue music, particularly, there's, I mean, obviously this music creates a great audio representation of what you're seeing on the the screen at this point. Um, but one of the things that strikes me about the way the music changes and layers fits in with the way the visuals layer up and, and continue to change. You start off with Galadriel, and I, this is something that I talked about in the uh, the podcasts before, that Galadriel, to me, almost seems very much set up to be sort of a mother goddess for this world. She's uh, overseeing everything that goes on, so it's perfect that she's the one who does this mm. introduction. Um, and that beautiful, haunting, goddess-like melody that you get at the beginning mm fits so well with her and on screen you're seeing this glow around everything everything looks godlike everything looks that little bit unreal and then gradually as more instruments get introduced you get the, the you know the the strings come in and then you start to get more of a sense of the world coalescing and becoming more like a solid place that people can stand on and walk around and um then you get the uh, the drums come in when you get into the the uh, battle scenes and there's still that slightly unreal um, I don't quite know how to describe it. There's almost a sheen to what you're seeing on the screen. Everything looks like it's in the history book or it's it's something that's very mm. mythical. Yeah. It's, you're not quite in the presence. It's it, more of a sense of a real world, but very much something that has passed. And it's Mythology. almost like, yeah. exactly, and it's almost like you're circling the world and very gradually as the music builds up and builds up and becomes more and more complex, it becomes more and more real mm. um, until finally you get to the point where um, you're into Gollum finding the ring and then the visuals have become much more realistic, the music is much more um, intricate and there's, to me, that's the point at which it, it becomes the... It's not quite the present because obviously it's still about 500 years beforehand, but it's more like this is the actual world part of it. This is where the events occurred that we are going to deal with. Mm. Um, and the way that's been built up to me is is really the key to this whole introductory section. Those layers of music coming in and coming in and coming in until you have everything together. Also thematically, because you start in Mount Doom, effectively, uh, you get to dis- to ascend out of hell into this sort of purgatory that Gollum inhabits, and then up again into Hobbiton, which is like the nicest place on Earth. So it's it's sort of like the idealised version of, of, uh, of mankind's ability to actually set himself up a home on Earth. And then you by, you end the entire thing with Frodo going off effectively to heaven. Ah, yeah. Just thought of that on the spot. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's a piece uh, sort of about about halfway through there where um, we're in the Shire and uh, it's when Bilbo is it's, it's, he's he's writing the chapter called Concerning Hobbits. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, uh, Howard Shore only really uses about four instruments. He uses uh, what I mean. I don't know if these are exactly the instruments because that's what they sound like. I don't know enough about instruments, but they sound like a violin, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an accordion, and a drum. And there's, there is, there's, I think, something else, but to sort of just give the, the extra bits. But basically, it's just 
three or four instruments, which is, you know, basically a Hobbit band, not a, a massive orchestra, because they couldn't fit that in the Green Dragon. Just four people, three or four people in the corner of a pub playing, mm-hmm. uh, the soundtrack of, of the, the, the village. Yeah, and then when it gets to the next section after the, uh, Gandalf has met Frodo, and you actually get to see Hobbiton sort of spread out before you, the entire orchestra comes in with but yeah, he holds it back to begin with. And that, again, that's the stuff people didn't get to see in the theatrical edition. Yeah, it's actually, I like it replayed in, uh, Flaming Red Hair, which is the, uh, the, uh, the, the dance bit. Yeah, I was very tempted to put that in, but I just thought on yeah. its own without it, seeing anything on the screen, it just seems a little bit that's, out of place. So again, it's only about three or four instruments. So mm. it's, yeah, that, that's the, the actual, you know, Hobbit, Hobbit's making music, whereas the, yeah, the, the, the surrounding Shire music is, is, uh, sort of setting the world. When, I think I said this while we were listening as well, the, um, when it's doing the Shire and Hobbiton, uh, it, it keeps it sort of very sort of homely and, and, and keeps it very, um, as realistic as possible. Um, but at the same time, this kind of honeyed, sweet natured realism. But, um, when the Hobbit themes get reprised throughout the series, and it, indeed into the Hobbit, um, it's, it can swell up, but it's usually when it's, uh, exploring the essential values of the hobbits and their essential decency and their, the bravery of the individual hobbit. That then warrants a much bigger orchestral kind of, you know, swell up. Uh, so yeah, listen out for that coming in later tracks. Let's move on. The next theme is called the Nazgul on the uh, track, but it's actually just after uh, Strider's gotten the hobbits away from the Nazgul. And um, it's when they are on their way to Rivendell and stop off at Weathertop. And if you listen carefully, there's a lot of kind of Gondorian trumpets in there, just subtly suggesting the kingly nature of Strider, their new companion, and, uh, but they're sort of a brooding, creeping, so you've got the fellowship theme starting up there as well. Not for the first time in the entire, um, film, but definitely it's suggesting he is going to be a very important part of the fellowship. And, um, it finishes with him singing the song of Baron and Luthien, which, uh, we've actually got Vigo Mortensen's voice on the, uh, soundtrack here. And, uh, it's, Strider doesn't get enough of his own music throughout the series, so this is kind of a, a nice little sort of introduction to him. Because, I mean, think about it. What's Aragorn's theme? Precisely. <laughs> Whatever plays when he bursts through the doors of Tedoros, I would say. <laughs> That's mainly just sort of like... Yeah, it's kind of similar when he jumps over the uh, boat rail in uh, when he gets to Minas Tirith. It's kind of a... Ultimately, yeah, he's... He's twinned with the most dramatic and heroic elements of the Fellowship theme. But uh, yeah, this is the uh, Strider's moment.
I think having uh, the the song of Beren and Luthien there, sung by Viggo Mortensen, and similarly with uh, Ian McKellen singing The Road Goes Ever On and On at the beginning, mm. um, this weaving of, of the characters and the actors actually singing throughout is another thing that adds to the, the realism of the world, because mm. in, in real life, when people sing, yeah. um, you know, they, when they're bored or when they're trying to concentrate or you know whatever people do like that and or at a funeral and it, it does make sense and I, I really like the fact that there's so many of the the actors got to sing their own little pieces and in some cases write their own little pieces mm. um to to fit in with the uh, the music of the whole thing and it's it it doesn't detract at all from the great sweeping majesty of what howard shaw's put together um it, but it gives you these little musical keys that are very much of the world. Mm. Um, and also, obviously, tie it in with the books as well, because a lot of the lyrics were taken um, straight from mm. lyrics in the original text, which is nice. Right, so the next one is called Simply the Great Eye, but a lot more is actually going on in there. This is the second half of the Council of Elrond, and it starts out with the... Uh, Minas Tirith theme, the Gondor theme, which is when uh, Boromir stands up in the extended editions and starts talking about, you know, this will be a gift, a gift to our people. We can use it against him. Long as my father defended his, you know, and he, it's it's a it's a lovely little moment for Boromir, even though you know he's going to turn out to be a bounder and a cad. Uh, that he has these great, that he's being genuine here. He's he's, he's all bluster, but. For just a fraction of a moment, he's trying to turn this dream he's had of the doom of man into something positive. And then it it goes into the Baradur theme because everything goes to hell and there's all the arguing. And so, yeah, everyone's getting up and Gimli very wisely in uh, Wivendell's going, Never trust an elf! <laughs> and so you get that... That's pretty much Sauron's theme if he's got one. And then there's some sort of ringwraith uh, stuff in there as well, even though the ringwraiths aren't present. That kind of that chanting, just showing this horrible blackness of the ring and how it can only ever bring ruin and doom to everyone. So it's kind of this is the point that hammers home in the extended edition that this thing really isn't going to be positive for anyone. Actually, that's in the theatrical. That bit's in the theatrical edition as well. It then rounds up into Frodo's simple courage. And actually what you mentioned before, Sharon, in the, in the Fellowship uh, reviews about how he just doesn't want to let the ring go, uh, which then drums up into sort of the, the formation of the Fellowship. So you've got the, you have my sword, and you have my bow, and my axe, kind of stuff going on. Though presumably not the one he broke. Well, the, yeah, you have my other six <laughs>
Um, this this track, quite you know, like quite a few others, um, sort of encapsulates the uh, the complete recordings that they because they're just you know as the film, you know, they take completely different thematic uh, sort of waves through the track. Yes, it starts off like hopeful, then goes into uh, Mordor, then Baradur, then and try sort of triumph and end up. I think that's very interesting for a, a sort of a singular track. It mm. makes it feel more like a whole than just a, just just one, you know, sort of one, which is is what's missing um, with the sort of the standalone uh, soundtracks. Yeah, it never just resorts to background noise that you can sort of listen to to you know just yeah. just to give it mood. It's it's telling the story as well in music. This next track, Gilwyn's Memorial, is um, the next scene where Narragorn's on his knees next to a statue that it turns out to be uh, his mother. Only, I think it's only actually repeated once, this bit, when they're leaving Lothlorien and uh, he's talking to uh, Galadriel. Mournful, elven, it's very sombre, and it almost seems to carry a warning with it. It then moves on to uh, Bilbo and Frodo together when he gives him the... uh, a mithril shirt and there will be a spike when Bilbo makes a lunge for the ring and then there's a lovely bit which is not in the theatrical editions when uh, they have to leave Rivendell and Frodo has to decide left or right and there's a certain kind of uncertainty in the actual music where you know he's setting out and he's brave and he wants to get things right but he doesn't even really know what he's doing and that's sort of representing the music and then the whole thing rounds up to this triumphant crashing fellowship thing where they're finally setting out they've got the ring you know going into the misty mountains and it's that classic shot where they're going over the mountain range and you get to see each one in turn
I never called that before. It ends on a gong. Yeah. Interesting, because that kind of, that that's the sort of all bad stuff's just coming around the corner. Gong's a representative of battle. The voice at the beginning of that piece of music, mm. it's pitched in such a way that it's difficult to tell whether it's a, a very low-pitched female voice or a slightly high-pitched male voice. Mm. And You can hear her say Estelle, though, yeah, again, which is yeah. Aragorn's other name. Indeed. But... Uh, for, for Aragorn to be who he is, I think he would have had to have a mother who was strong and, you know, taught him to be capable and self-assured and, and especially, you know, growing up in... Someone that he Elven sees in Arwen world. as well, clearly. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, now the Moria section of the film. Um, Sharon, you definitely wanted to talk about uh, Moria itself. It's 22 minutes worth of music on the CDs. And I'm just not going to subject you guys to that much um, having to, to sit still and listen to the darker themes of Moria. So I've abbreviated it into uh, an eight-minute section, uh, which incorporates the journey into the Dwarodelf once they get to the place with all the pillars, and then into uh, Barlin's tomb. It then leads up to the We Cannot Get Out, They Are Coming and then the goblins enter, and then just before the cave troll gets in, it cuts straight to Gandalf going up against the Balrog on the bridge. There's just so much around it, and so much sort of male voice choir stuff that goes on for so long. Yeah, we couldn't not represent it, but we couldn't represent it in full. And I didn't just want to give you exactly what's on the single disc, which is a really nice kind of medley of uh, those bits. It's interesting that you pick up on this, the, the sort of constant drumming of that male voice section, because I think one thing that that does uh, evoke extremely well and give you very much a sense of is the ongoing nature of Moria, the fact that they go down into this um, almost to a, a, another level of the world mm. and it goes for miles and miles and miles and miles. They they probably travel as far underground as they have already travelled overground. Yeah. Um and just this idea of it's it's never ending, just this, you know, relentless darkness and oppression, which for everybody except possibly Gimli would be an incredibly alien sensation. You know, hobbits are used to living above ground and, and out in the sunshine. Elves are used to being very elevated and, and having air around them all the time. And Aragorn is used to the outdoors. Um, and even Boromir is, is, you know, battlefield out under the open sky is, is his territory, really. But the, the just this feeling of having everything closing in around them... Um, the music that plays in the Dwarodelf. It's a dungeon crawl. It's effectively. Yeah, you it know, is, when you go in, you starts, don't get to come out until, no, until it's finished. It's completely done. But it yeah. begins very the dwarves have, have who created this made it look magnificent and intricate and um you know it's it's very striking but well to begin with effectively they're just going through the caverns the naturally formed caverns of the mountain which the dwarves have made paths around mm. but the, i'm talking about the hall that they've, they've oh, right. created so the actual the center of the mine, yeah. Yeah. yeah um but ultimately it's underground and nobody has seen it for years and years and years I believe the way that the Dwarf Duff is set up that 
and Chris, you may be able to confirm this one, those pillars they've got are, rather than erect them, what they did is carve that hole out of solid rock. Well, I think that's the only way you could really do it. I don't think they could carve in pillars. So. Yeah. Things. It just it, um, you wouldn't be able to. I mean, there isn't space to get each pillar up each time. It looks yeah. to me like they've they've worked with um, stalactites and stalagmites to make them. They're all too uniform. Far too uniform. It, it has the impression of stalactites mm, and stalagmites. Yeah, sorry, that's what I mean. But um, the geometrical nature of it suggests they have gone in with their mathematical ability to just go right. This comes away. This comes away. They've taken away everything in the mountain that's not pillars. The music, I, I like the music in this because it was from the start. It, it reminds me of a sort of like survival horror thriller tension feel. Mm. So they have yeah the, the drums basically throughout and with uh, sort of violin stings every so often and um, the chanting. They start it off with more foreboding and then obviously when you get to the, the Balrog, it's there's a massive dragon tonal journey from the beginning where they find the door which is oh this is sort of magical and then they, it goes sort of deeper in, deeper into hell and, and they find a cat on the other side yeah. okay so this is the Moria suite which incorporates the Balrog
the only other thing I'll say about that rising piece in the uh, the Dwarven City is that with hindsight now, having seen The Hobbit, it really, really gives you that sense of this Dwarven capital that's been abandoned. Because you've now seen one that was alive. Yeah. 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 yeah it um, also makes the... Um... The, the sad, you know, bit after it where, where Gimli exclaims and runs off. That's a bit. That's more impactful now. You know, that's Balin yeah. who mm-hmm. and Ori. I think. I feel like that's going to become more and more impactful as the years go on. That piece following their exit from Moria. One of the most powerful bits of cinema for me. Yeah. And one of the most powerful pieces of uh, emotional music mixed with um, imagery. I think it's close to being one of the, the... There's actually two or three in these these soundtracks, but it's close to being that uh, a perfect piece of music that strikes the same emotional chords every time I hear it. Yeah. For the last part of the fellowship, we couldn't just jump straight to the middle of the two towers. So I was looking for a piece that would round out this leg of the adventure without just rehashing stuff that had been on the single-disc uh, soundtracks. Uh, which everyone will have heard, because this part of the film is actually pretty well catered for. You get most of the important stuff, but also one that uh, felt authentic to that moment. And now we did both Sam's moment at uh, the end of the Fellowship on the review and his moment to a very similar piece of music at the end of uh, The Two Towers. So those have been done. So I figured I'd give some extra time to the departure of Boromir. But this is... The extended version of that, which also includes the Lurtz fight in there as well. Requiem for uh, a brave soldier who has actually given his life for, for the, um, the the least able to defend themselves of the Fellowship. And it also marks the actual, because of his mistake and because of Frodo's uh, reaction to it, he's killed the Fellowship as well. So it's kind of a, a reflection on, on what has now passed as a result. Well, they, they, these films do sort of emotion, emotional scenes, uh, sort of the way I like them to be done, which I, I think is more impactful. Is they, you know, they lower the sort of sound effects and the the voice, you know, the actors, and then just sort of play up the music. So they did that just just as we heard in the uh, end of the Moria uh, piece, and then they do it again in the beginning of this. You just hear the music and the um, ju- just the sound effects of of the arrows yeah. being being loosed and and hitting. Which is, I think, more far more impactful than hearing someone scream "No," which they do in some films.
So that one ties up the Fellowship of the Ring. This next one for the Two Towers is simply called Theoden King. And it's actually when he comes back from the brink of being under Saruman's thrall. So you get that wonderful Rohan theme. And it's got that kind of... And then it gets to the point where it's your fingers would remember their strength if they grasped your sword. And then the Norwegian fiddle comes in. And you'll know exactly at that point. It's like... Da, 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 da. But in this one song, you get a huge range of emotion because he comes back from that, then he casts out worm tongue, so you get anger, and then it goes to Theodred's funeral, and you get a bit of the Airwood theme, and then it leads in with Miranda Otto's wonderful, powerful funeral dirge for Theodred. And then you get Theoden's grief... All of, you know, so much of the Rohan stuff all tied up in this one moment because it all sort of revolves around Theoden. So it's a fantastic piece. It's a brilliant example of how uh, Howard Shaw has used variety of instruments as well to mm. create these, um, you know, entirely different senses of, of people and place mm. um, by drawing cultural parallels between instruments that we, we may not know them to look at them or we may not really know what they are unless we're particularly well versed in, in you know, international music. Um, but they've all got very distinct sounds that do pin them to uh, to cultures that we are at least vaguely familiar with.
I think one of the the essences of that scene as well is that the way the procession carries on and the music brings this forward as well there is such a combination of triumph and grief woven together in a way that it it's almost like in Rohan you cannot separate them if you look at the way that uh, that the Gondorians handle battle and the way that um, particularly uh, Boromir and uh, Denethor mm. look at, at um, Minas Tirith's position in all of this, it's it's all about the the image, the shiny armor, and the going out there and and you know winning and. In Rohan, it's almost like the the death that is an inevitable part of this. They cannot get away from it's it's everything is all connected for them. They don't have this nice shiny white city where they can live up above all the horror and, and awful things that are going on and, and pretend that it's not really happening. It's for them. It's within. It's all. Uh, intricately knotted together and you know you have that in the Celtic knotwork that they've got in all the tapestries and it's it uh, and the music again gives you that Celtic come Scandinavian uh, sense of love and life and loss all being chained together in a way that you can't get away from and I, I that piece of music is so beautiful so another uh, casualty of the theatrical editions uh, was Faramir. So I picked out a piece of music from the key scene uh, with him in the Two Towers, which was excised, and that is a piece called Sons of the Steward, which incorporates his flashback where he um, was with Boromir when they retook Osgiliath, and then their altercation with Denethor. There's a lot of creeping tension, brooding in there, and a lot of sadness as well. Uh, but it's underpinned in the middle with a, a you know a tiny amount of triumph, where you know it, it actually seems like there might be some hope for Gondor, and that its champion has actually brought the Osgiliath back, which is a huge deal for them. Uh, so. Um, because we haven't actually put the massive Gondor themes in later, because they're freely available on the one disc, and we played them repeatedly throughout the uh, reviews, this is our nod towards Gondor, uh, but also towards Faramir, whose character was severely diminished by the theatrical edit, and brought back to life with the extended. Or, oh, and brought fully to life in a way that he had never been before.
Now, this next one I put in for you, Chris. Yep. <laughs> because you're such a fan of elves and bows and Haldir. And um, so it's it's the host of the Eldar. Now, this is the point where it's like, that is no Orkhorn. And the elves all turn up at Helm's Deep to help out in a way that didn't happen in the book. Because we didn't put in the Lothlorien theme, I think I used it repeatedly throughout the... Um, well, I know I used it repeatedly throughout the uh, reviews. It's it's like 10 minutes long again. People are very familiar with it because of the, the single disc. I wanted to go for the Lothlorien theme with a bit of variation. So this is kind of the more militaristic marching version of it. Um, but it also contains some kind of a nervous, angsty, broody, you know, build up to the Battle of Helm's Deep where everyone's thinking, we're gonna die, we're gonna die. It's, it's, it's very appropriate for, um, for this stage in the movie. So that uh, that little horn there, which played the Rohan theme, is like their tiny little thread of hope. That we might live through the night. There is always hope. I'm not sure if it actually played it exactly that point, but it would make sense. 
yeah, this is sort of reminiscent of um, Napoleonic era battles where they had a sort of a drummer sort of, you know, sounding the march, which they sort of have in this in in the background. They have that drum sort of constantly beating out the rhythm, and it um, sort of broadcasts is the wrong word. Broadcasts the intention of the elves that you know we we're going to war and and is shown in the uh, in the film a bit later we are sort of perfectly in sync with each other and the you know, sort of martial prowess is is un, un, uh, unparalleled except it's not because they will die yeah they all die <laughs> so moving on this is where all the elves die well it's like um uh 300 but not yeah. the film the actual yeah, as in the glorious death that will be spoken. Yeah. We'll go, you know what? Those folks from Lothlorien, they were good eggs <laughs> as opposed to just defending their own territory. Also, if you look at the uh, the, the Napoleonic Wars and, and what happened in that era and in, in battles after, people got tore apart with gunpowder. Yeah. yeah. And I suppose um, for this next part, uh, which is Halder's Lament, uh, if you look in his eyes the next time you watch this, the one thing that is uh, apparent is he is going, I'm not even supposed to be here today! And then there's that sudden rise up into the chaos of war. And then you've got the... This is our, our token Isengard theme in there, because you've got that... It's got that kind of pile driver thing of the of the military machine going on, uh, mixed in with um, baleful Rohan theme of "Oh my God, we've lost this time." So yeah, this is the uh, the the point at Helm's Deep where everything goes completely to pot, and they have to end up retreating into the Tower of the Holmberg.
And to round off the Battle of Helm's Deep, we've got a trifecta of victory. The track is called Theodenwide's Fourth, and this is where they burst out of the Hornburg and, um, it's, it's effectively the suicide run and it's, you know, they're just going to go down in glory as to be worthy of a song and maybe take out a couple more Urukai and, and maybe delay the uh, attack on the women and children behind them. Uh, just for a few moments and it's then followed by Gandalf riding down the hill with Eomer uh, and his riders which is this incredible rousing kind of uh, I think it's something you said at the time is biblical absolutely in the actual uh, uh, film and then it's uh, followed up by the Ents tearing apart Isengard and, and, and uh, releasing the river so it's uh, it's actually um, known as Nature's Reclamation, this particular... That... That's nature sort of taking over and, and, and taking back the land around Isengard for itself.
the image of a boiling ocean just crashing left and right. It's really kind of summed up there. The, the whole thing is like Middle Earth is, is in absolute chaos. So then Sam's speech straight afterwards about that there will be something good to hang on to and that, that there will be another day after this as the image of the water is draining away it's kind of the relief of that the, the sense that the seas are calming yeah it's also uh, paralleled quite nicely with the at the end of Return of the King well not quite the end um, where you've got the apparent sea of the army of the dead washes over Pelennor Fields and over Minas Tirith mm. But very quietly, the actual yeah. that music. The is, music yeah. is, yeah. But that, that sense of uh, terrible things happening, and then the the waters rushing up and washing it all away. Mm. Now this next piece, we're on to return of the king here, and rather than going for one of the big operatic moments, uh, we've actually gone for a quiet, short piece, a character piece for Eowyn. It's it's simply called Eowyn's Dream, and this is a part that again was taken out of the theatrical editions. But it's a lovely piece of emotional music and it's 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 quite vulnerable reflecting the moment and it's an elaboration on the existing Eowyn theme to give it kind of a uh, almost a second movement and a second theme and a slightly more reflective version which comes back repeatedly when Eowyn talks to Theoden because he's got her future in mind in fact a lot of him and Eomer very much have Eowyn's future in mind they they don't believe that she'll be in direct danger in the next few days so it's it's very much a case of we're going off to die you're going to have to stay here and live and obviously that's the one thing she wants to fight against because she wants to protect them and her country and she wants to fight for them so there's that conflict within her which is represented in this dream of being powerless to prevent a tidal wave from engulfing the land We've talked about um, this music being very operatic and that the, the music itself, in a way, is able to tell the story. Um, but what struck me listening to these tracks is how balletic they are, that you could make them into, you know, you could put a dance with this and, and you know, proper, full-on theatrical 
When would the cave Bala. troll come out? I'm not saying you're wrong. Big costumes. Three large men standing on each other's shoulders. Lord of the Rings ballet. I think that would be great. On comes Gothmog and the pirouetting hordes of Mordor. <laughs> I, I would go see it. It would probably... Uh, did anyone... Did anyone... Chris, did you ever go and see the Lord of the Rings musical? No. I sort of wanted to, to see how bad it would be. Yeah, me too. Um, Actually, but, I think my sister offered me a ticket one time, but I, yeah. it would have required taking it the, down. I, I hate musicals with a passion, so... All musicals? Extra, extra, yeah. Well, I, there are, I mean, there are ones that aren't serious. I mean, like Spamalot and Avenue Q and... I love Avenue Q. Yeah, things like that. But one... I. I was worried it'll be too, you know, too serious and they'll just come off like, like musicals, which I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't really want you to. You were worried it. that it would be too serious. Well, yeah, too serious and then go, you know, try to be overly serious and then go into, into, you know, comedy and not actually meant to, you know, it's like trying to be over serious and then you, you goes into comedy when it's not meant to be comedy, like, you know, Avenue Q and Spam that are. And also I don't think the, whoever was doing the music could do it as well as Howard Shaw. That's yeah. literally what I was going to say. It's like I, we, I, I've grown to identify with this music so much that whenever I, it's one of the reasons why I wasn't particularly blown away by uh, War in the North. Without the Howard Shaw music, it diminishes even the uh, wetter, authentic Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah, the only one I actually, the, the Lord of the Rings Online music is quite good. I think they're just basically a, cop, well, they've sort of copied as much as they can quite a lot of stuff. Which, <laughs> uh, I shall have to take a listen to that. Yeah, it's um, I mean, or, or also you can also just put in your own music. I think it's just some kind of the Howard Shaw stuff. Yeah, just put all the Howard Shaw. It's like the thing with the complete recordings. You've got enough for it to be playing technically on a loop, but a loop every ten hours of play, which is yeah. not very. Although nice. it might not thematically work if you're in the middle of uh, Moria and it's playing the Hobbit thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Folks, if you if any of you have actually seen the Lord of the Rings stage musical, let us know on the forums. Okay, this next one is the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Now, this is represented on a single disc. It's very well known to everyone, but it's such an incredible, rousing moment and a culmination of the Rohan theme and the Nature's Reclamation theme that it would be impossible for us not to include it. So this is where all of Rohan is assembled to ride down into the assembled 200,000 orcs of Mordor.
counterpoint that, we've got Gandalf and Pippin alone to one side as the hosts of Mordor batter down the gates. Pippin asks uh, Gandalf to prepare him for death. Because we can't play the entirety of the Grey Havens music, we went through all of that in the uh, Return of the King podcast. And this is just a, a, a nod to that. This is that, that first riff that uh, ends up being expanded into that. And it's just a lovely, simple little moment, which is usually uh, got Ian McKellen talking on it. But if, at this point, we can just listen to the music. And then it rises up to this horrifying reality of war seeping back in and then crashing down at the very, very end. It's just a very short piece, um, but it's it's very emotional, too. This next one is called The Last Debate. Now, it's actually, a lot of this track is not in the main film itself. I think it plays over some of the end credits on the extended edition when it's got that massive list. It's like 24 minutes of people's names that they put up some money on the uh, website. Effectively, it's a, it's, it was a Kickstarter back in its day. Uh, I think you like you put forward $10 and you get to have your name in the credits. Um but this was actually a piece that got bumped. It's by a, uh, an artist named uh, Cicel Kirkiebo. The first part of it takes place when they're deciding what's to be done about Frodo, and they're having the debate in the, um, the, the throne room in Minas Tirith. But then there's this wonderful piece of flute music, and then there's a piece of choral music by, by Cicel, which originally was going to be over the Houses of Healing. And then Liv Tyler's piece got moved from back when it was going to be Arwen seeing her son. It got moved to the Houses of Healing as a, a favour for Liv Tyler. And they put this new piece over Arwen. And now, I actually think this piece would go work very well for either the Houses of Healing or for Arwen seeing Eldarion, her son. So listen to it with that in mind.
I can understand why they switched it with the Houses of Healing bit um, for Liv Tyler's song because that particular track, there's a mournful note to it. And I think at that juncture, the uh, the track that Liv Tyler did is there's more of a hopeful element to it. It's it's very much a, a things becoming that little bit better in the heart of all this horror and war and I, I think you kind of you do need that little bit at that moment but that there is definitely a sense in that one and if if you have um access to the extended return of the, the king soundtrack try and track that one down and listen to it because it's there's this sense of otherworldliness to it it's like it really reminds me of um the the couple of days after lyra was born in the hospital being awake in the middle of the night and having that sense of just having stepped aside from the world for a moment. Um, it very much has that, that feel to it. Um, and obviously the lyrics kind of key in with that, that moment in your life as well. Now there's a vocalist called Renee Fleming who turns up repeatedly throughout Return of the King. She's in, uh, the, uh, the Grace of Undomni Alwen, Alwen sees, uh, Eldari and she's in, the bit where Gollum finally gets the ring back and then you it sort of pans out from his face and through the ring and you get that She's got this incredible, haunting, ethereal voice. And she turns up uh, when the eagles fly down to um, to pick up Frodo. So she's, she's kind of a recurring voice throughout this. And what I'm going to play for you now is, because we couldn't just play the bit where it's like, I cannot carry your burden for you, Frodo, but I can carry you, because that is in the, is on the single disc. I played it on the um, reviews. And everyone's heard it over and over again. This is the Crack of Doom, which is less well-known. And it's from exactly the point where Frodo's hanging on the edge and Sam's, don't you let go. And there's a reprise of the But I Can Carry You triumphant moment when he manages to pull Frodo back and get him back up again. And then the mountain erupts around them. So it's this sort of, this is the this is the culmination of the journey of the hobbits to get rid of the ring. But then I'm actually going to include a little bit extra on the end of this track, which is part of the eagles where they're lying on the side of the volcano and the, the lava's going down and they just they've done it. They've done what they set out to do and now they're sadly getting ready to meet death. But they're reflecting on their lives and the line "Rosie Cotton dancing" always gets to me. Don't know why.
Um, now to finish us off, rather than going through that, there's like another 20, 30 minutes or so of music and people will complain that there are too many endings to this podcast. We're going to just do two short tracks and uh, both of them you won't really have heard unless you have the... Um, actually, even if you do have the complete soundtrack, because this next one is not available anywhere unless you track it down on YouTube. It's the original song that Annie Lennox was going to sing before they decided it wasn't powerful enough. It feels incomplete. It feels a little bit rushed. And the tone isn't quite right with the end of the movie. It's actually, from Frodo's perspective, to Sam... And I fully expect Chris to loathe this song because it's somewhere in Lennox. I still think it has merit, and I kind of wish it was available elsewhere. But uh, as an oddity and a rarity, you can uh, judge it for yourself. And uh Well 
you've completely redeemed into the West. <laughs> <laughs> that is far, far better than that. Um, yeah, I know it is. Because, well, anyway, I, I mean, nice percent of Into the West is fine. I just don't like the chorus when she belts out. Um, That's not exactly 10% of it. <laughs> well, oh, it's loud enough to be the whole song. But... <laughs> I, I just like to go on record as saying I really love that bit. <laughs> so that, that is, I like, you know, several magnitudes better than that yeah. song. This one, that one's more of a, here's what you could have won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I said, I actually kind of wish this was available so people could get a bit of perspective and go, oh, okay, well, some things don't work out. And, um, I, I still think it's, a, it's kind of a lovely song. It doesn't really work her being Frodo's voice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. It's interesting from a, yeah, from a sort of film making or you know the school making perspective which i mean i'd like to to have more of that and hopefully in hopefully 20 year anniversary edition might have but. <laughs> we just made up this edition that's coming well, the, peter jackson definitely says that we're at 20th anniversary yeah, in one of the, uh, the throwaway thing yeah but he's now he, that would be very soon to what the end of the the, the third hobbit film that would be the near, nearing the 20th anniversary so i think you'll get it it's more likely than him being made king of new zealand but both are likely <laughs> <laughs> anyway and the final piece is called bilbo's song and this is at the very tail end of the complete lord of the rings score uh, it's in it's got to be in the credits somewhere again i think it's going to be over that long list of of names of people who do, you know join the kickstarter because it's not featured anywhere else on the uh, soundtrack and it's this lovely quiet choral piece that's kind of like a warmer version of um the music that boromir dies to you know i i'm interpreting from this that it's it's kind of the voices that are guiding bilbo into the west on another adventure and it's it's sad. It's it's very emotional, but at the same time, it's got a, it's got a hope to it. So it's not just funereal. And he, Howard Shaw, could frankly bring this back and play it at the very very end of the Hobbit, and it would be perfect. So before we go, I'd just like to thank very much Sharon Shaw of Dorkcast. Thank you. And Chris Eason of Gameburst. Thank you. You've been wonderful companions, and I hope to bring you back to my fellowship in a year's time. Look forward to it. <laughs> Fantastic. We shall ride again. Okay. So we're going to close out now with a lovely short piece named Bilbo's Song. <laughs> 